So if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And so our Advent series um, is going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to kind of work our way through uh, just Isaiah chapter 9, even just the first half of Isaiah chapter 9 over the next few weeks. I can find it. So we're just looking at verses one and two tonight. And so the prophet Isaiah writes this. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we give you thanks for all of your many blessings as we, as we conclude this Thanksgiving weekend, as we enter into, to the holiday season, God. Um, we give you thanks for all of your many blessings. Um, we thank you for the joys of, of friends and family, of food and fellowship that we have shared, um, over the last few days. Um, God, we, we, um, thank you for the memories of, of loved ones, uh, who are no longer with us during this time. Um, God, we look forward to the future, um, with, with marriages and births and, and new additions and new friendships. Um, and God, thank you for all the ways that you work through all of these things to bring joy and meaning and blessing into our lives. God, we, we thank you, um, supremely for your word. We thank you that um, you have uh, given us um, uh, your word, that you have revealed to us your, um, uh, God, what you would have us to know, uh, that you have spoken to us through these things. God, that we can come to this objective source, that we can hear you speak through them. God, the, the supernatural, mystical way that you, um, that you speak to us in your word, that it is living and active. Um, and that it divides uh, our hearts and, and um, God shows us who you are, shows us who we are um, and the, the predicament that we find ourselves in as a sinful humanity. Um, God, we ask that as we open your word that you would shine a light on this text. Um, God, that you would apply these things to our hearts, that you would help us to um, orient our thoughts in this season um, uh, and align them with what your word would have us to, to know and to believe. And that in all these things that you would be glorified and we would be drawn close to you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is sort of an oddity, um, in all honesty, of Baptists who celebrate Advent. Okay? Uh, that's not something that Baptists oftentimes do. Sometimes high church Baptists do, depending on the the where you're from or things like that. But, but country Baptists, um, if you go back in Baptist history, there's a Charleston Association of Baptists and there's what's called the Sandy Creek Association of Baptists. 
which are sort of founding era kind of two associations. And Charleston tends to be high church and, and, and Sandy Springs, uh, uh, tends to be low church. Um, and, um, and so we, uh, uh, Sandy Creek, not Sandy Springs, that's here. Um, and so we, uh, Probably many of the churches that we grew up in, um, if you grew up Baptist, are, are more in the keeping of the of the Sandy um, Creek variety. Um, here's the thing about Advent, and so we we should probably say it up front: um, we don't have to celebrate Advent. If, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Bible does not prescribe per se the celebration of Advent in terms of a liturgical church calendar um, or anything like that. But just because it doesn't prescribe it specifically doesn't mean that there aren't helpful um, spiritual disciplines that we can use and go about um, in those things. And so I think there's all kinds of different ways that we can apply the scriptures and the reading of scripture and, and prayers and, and all these things and, and emphases in the Bible at certain times. And those things can be um, spiritually beneficial to us. Um, they don't have to. We don't have to do any of them. Okay. Um, but But they can be helpful for us. Advent, in terms of the liturgical calendar of the year, is one of the two penitential seasons of the church. All right? And so penitential, penitent, repentant. Um, Advent is a penitential season, and then Lent is a penitential season. So I think up front, it says something about the fact that through the history of the church, as sort of these ideas of liturgical calendar were, were growing and, and falling into place throughout um, Christendom, uh, that the two most significant holidays, the birth of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus, are both preceded by seasons of penitence. Okay, That says something about where our hearts should be in the focus of Christianity uh, and what we believe. Um, we should come into the Advent season in a uh, reflective, somber, repentant posture. And obviously, if you look around, that is the opposite of typically the way we lead into Christmas, okay? It is not the way we practice the season of Advent in this country. Um, Christmas is supposed to be this uh, a day of, of feast and, and of celebration that lasts um, after. You, know, you have this day, this thing happens, and you continue to celebrate it for weeks afterwards, um, but what our culture has done is it has flipped it kind of, right? It extends the celebration backwards, making Christmas Day not the beginning of the celebration, but the culmination of the celebration in, in many ways, right? And so we joke about the fact that and it's getting to where as soon as Labor Day is over, like you start seeing Christmas sales and decorations and things like that. And we just keep on pushing back because we want to have the feeling of Christmas through, you know, quarter of the year or something like that. And, and so there's, there's almost like the idea in that way of doing things that Christmas day is almost like giving birth. Okay. And so it's something that you are looking forward to and building towards for all these weeks and months ahead of time. And then finally the day arrives and, and the baby is here. And then pretty soon you just get back to your normal life, you know, and go about your business. And so it's the build up and then the celebration. But the Bible, um, I think would, would, the reason why we have this idea of, 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 of a penitential season leading up to it is because there are concepts that we miss out on when we do that. Um, 
the more traditional liturgical way um, is that Christmas Day is not the culmination or the climax, but it is the debut, okay? It is the dawning. Um, it is the beginning of the celebration that has been marked by a period of, of um, more somber, repentant reflection. Um, I was reading an author this week, and they made a comment about the fact that they came from an Episcopal family that was very traditional in the way they decorated and different things like that. And the deal was in their family, the mother would not allow the family to decorate until Christmas Eve. You wouldn't, you weren't allowed to do that. And the, and the, this, this person said they knew the answer, but they came to their mom one day and they said, mom, how come we don't get to decorate our house until Christmas Eve and everybody else decorates before? And she said, because Christmas should come in a burst. Okay. And I thought that was a cool idea. The idea almost, again, it, it should all be at once where the miracle of it and the glory of it is, is explodes on the scene in a similar way that Christ's coming exploded onto the scene. Christ has come and then we celebrate his coming after that. Now again, all that to say, um, do, is that how we do it in our house? And the answer is no. Um, there is a, a merry war betwixt, um, people in my house. Um, my wife wants to do it more traditionally liturgical, and my kids are like, if we don't decorate until Christmas Eve, you're going to ruin Christmas for everybody. And so but, so here's the deal. Part of what I'm saying is this. Again, we're Baptists, and this isn't in the Bible, okay? So we don't have to do any of these things. You can start decorating at any point or not decorate. Probably many of you know the early church didn't even celebrate Christmas Easter has always been celebrated, but Christmas was not something that people even celebrated in the early years of, of the church. And so, so we can come up with our own traditions. But again, I think there's a benefit to this. I think the pattern of the older tradition that Advent brings, it, there's an important idea there. And it is demonstrated in this text, this longer text in Isaiah, but certainly the beginning of it. And that is this idea, is that Advent begins in darkness. Okay, the story of the coming of Jesus begins with him not having come yet. It might seem obvious. Before the dawn breaks, there is a time of darkness, gloom even, that precedes it. So let me set up this passage just a little bit with the beginning of Isaiah. So if you read Isaiah 1 through 6 um, up to this point, or one through eight up to this point, what you see is basically Isaiah comes in and he begins preaching this message of judgment on Israel. Uh, her leadership is corrupt. The people are idolatrous and God is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And so um, we see in Isaiah six that that's the famous um, passage where he has this vision of the throne room of God. It's the passage that we use as the template for our service every week in Isaiah six. And in which Isaiah basically realizes, man, it's not just them that are wicked. It's me, too. We are all um, unclean before God. And God's judgment is, I mean, standing in light of his His holiness, what can any of us do? Um, and he basically says, remember, woe is me, for I am ruined. But an angel comes with a coal from the altar of God, um, not to burn him up, but to touch his mouth with this coal as a symbol of cleansing, to purify him, right? And so God purifies Isaiah and then, and then uh, says, I want you to go and preach to these people. They're not going to listen to you, but you, you have to go tell them anyway. 
uh, what's going to happen is Israel is going to be judged. I'm going to bring in foreign nations, and they are going to conquer it. There's going to be a smoldering stump left of what Israel is, but from that stump, um, from that root of Jesse, is going to arise a, a seed, right, um, that is going to grow and is going to be the Messiah. So he promises that um, in the midst of all this difficulty, there is hope because from the ruins of Israel will come a messianic king to redeem the people. And we particularly see that idea pop up first in seven a little bit. That's the passage about um, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's in seven. But then in nine, we really start digging into the messianic language that we see all throughout Isaiah. But notice something. It begins with these words like this, the threat of gloom, the people who are in anguish, people who walk in darkness, who dwell in a land of deep darkness. This is the situation that the world finds itself in at the coming of the Messiah. And he's saying, he's saying, you won't live in that way any longer once the Messiah comes. There's going to, the Messiah is going to shine light into this, but, but obviously that means that in the midst of it, before he comes, they are in that situation, right? And those words are heavy, gloom, anguish, dwelling in darkness. The coming of the Messiah is going to dispel these things, but they're living in them at the time. And what I want to share, kind of point to you in the passage is, is the idea of this. Where does that darkness come from? How do we define that darkness? Well, we define it from three perspectives. There's sort of a circumstantial aspect of it. There is an aspect of it that is God's judgment. And then there is an aspect of it that is the consequence of our sin. And those are all connected in a certain way. So let's talk about that first idea. The darkness is circumstantial in a way. The darkness they experience, that we experience, that all people experience, outside of Christ, is in a sense non-moral, okay? In this passage, it's a function of their geography, okay? So notice this. We have a reference to these different things that maybe you're familiar with or maybe you're not. The, the, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and it talks about these three things, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations, or could be translated Galilee of the Gentiles, okay? So those are all geographic references. What are they pointing towards, okay? Well, the way of the sea is, is a reference to the passage. If you think in your head, if you've ever seen a map of Israel, right, there's, there's this thing called the Fertile Crescent, right? And, and, and the land goes up across Mesopotamia and comes down to where the Tigris and the Euphrates come out, and that crescent comes along and then down through Israel. In the middle of that is a desert, okay? It's the Arabian Desert and, and other stuff. And so you can't get through there. So everybody that wants to come from the east to the west or from the west to North Africa or any way they come, where do they end up? They end up coming right through this place called the Way of the Sea, which is functionally the little line that makes the coastal road between the desert and the Mediterranean Sea that runs right through the middle of Israel, okay? So that's the reference there. Um, to the way of the sea. The other references, Zebulun, Naphtali, so you probably recognize those as names of the tri some of the tribes of Israel, but particularly they are two of the most northern tri uh, tribes of Israel. Okay, So what basically is the case is, is that by this time, um, they represented the northernmost border of the nation. It was the point of access 
into Israel if you were going to invade, if you were going to conquer. It tells us in the passage that this area had been previously held in contempt by God, meaning he had done something to bring judgment on this land. And probably what he is referring to is the invasion of the Assyrian army in the year 721. Okay, so you remember from maybe your church history, this is the point at which the Assyrians invade and conquer the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And, and the distinction between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, Israel ceases to exist as a nation at this point. Only Judah, the southern kingdom, continues on um, for years ahead. The northern tribes fall, and that would have begun in Zebulun. That would have begun in Naphtali. They would have been the first to fall because they're the ones on the edge, all right? It, it probably goes without saying, but consider this. If you're a border state, border tribe, every conflict that your nation ever has is going to most directly involve you. Border raiders, centuries-long conflicts with, with Syria and Damascus and Assyria and Babylon. If, if, if you're going to get invaded by the Gentiles... It's going to happen in Zebulun and Naphtali, which is part of the reason why this region around the Sea of Galilee in this passage is also referenced as Galilee of the what? Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, because the Gentiles had come in and basically at this point taken over that area. Galilee would repeatedly suffer the rape and pillaging that came from every invading army that would come through, and then the death and destruction of every retreating army as they scorch earthed or, or took what they could as they went away. It's a region that has lived in chaos and heartache for centuries. Okay. And so when you start reading these passages about the gloom and the darkness, the people who live in deep darkness in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, you start going, yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, their daily lives look like this. I think there's a case. It's the case though, that Galilee stands is a stand in for the human condition. It's a world devastated by successive waves of tragedy and violence. There's a sense in which we all live in Galilee of the nations, right? Our world exists in Galilee of the nations. It's just how things are here, right? And all you got to do is turn on the news for a few minutes and you see the, the upheaval uh, of the world we live in, okay? And so on one side, it's just sort of like, man, the darkness that they live in, it's just part of our broken, fallen world. And they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's more complicated than that, obviously. Because all of that wrong place, wrong time is obviously connected to God's judgment on Naphtali and, and Zebulun. That brokenness is not in a vacuum. Um, they are under God's judgment in this passage. Why? Because of their idolatry. Because of their lack of obedience. Over the years, they turned away from the Lord and therefore, the Lord brought judgment on the nation of Israel. And so, again, we realize that darkness and brokenness in our world is not isolated in and of itself, but oftentimes it is a function of God's judgment on a place, on their sin, on their disobedience. We sit, all of us, under the curse of Genesis 3 at a general level, and then obviously there are many times in the scriptures where we see a much more specific judgment where God says, because of your actions, I'm going to do this thing. Um, and not just for Israel either, but the, the nations that invade Israel are later judged by God for their um, sin and disobedience. Assyria or Babylon or whoever. 
So the deal is this. Zebulun and Naphtali, sure, were poorly situated geographically, which caused them to be in the middle of a lot of uh, difficulty. But they were destroyed because God brought judgment upon their sin. Okay? So that darkness is there, too. But then again, we have to put an even finer point on because we can't just stop with that idea either, because that judgment does not exist in a vac- vacuum, but the judgment is a function of their sin. The sin that they have committed is the darkness that they live in as well. It is not the things out there that are the problem with the world, right? It's the things in here that are the problem with the world. We are the author of the darkness. When we try to determine where the darkness comes from, why it persists, we need to start by looking in the mirror and saying, how am I the source of, of, of darkness in, in my world, in my community or whatever? So one of my, we were talking about it in, in uh, history study. One of my favorite Christmas movies is The Lion in Winter. Now, you might go, Ash, I've never seen that. Is that a Christmas movie? And the answer is, it is a Christmas movie. It's it's not a Christmas movie like, uh, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas. That kind of, it's more like a diehard kind of Christmas movie, right? Like, it is a it is a movie that Christmas plays a central theme in the movie and, and is the setting for it. Um, but if you are looking for, like, warm fuzzies and happy endings and stuff like that, this is not the Christmas movie that you need to watch. But it's brilliant, and you should watch it. Um, but it's about Henry uh, II and Eleanor of Aquitaine and, and a Christmas gathering in, uh, in the 1100s and Richard the Lionheart's there and all these different characters. And, and it's this big, uh, uh, dramatic um, mess of stuff. But there's a scene in which, and I think I've shared it with you before because it's one of my favorite lines in any movie ever, is, is the sons are fighting and bickering and threatening each other about what they're going to do and their kingdoms and all these things like that. And Eleanor bursts out and she says, we are the origins of war, not history's forces, not the times, not justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. We carry it around inside us like syphilis. Dead bodies are rotting in field and stream because the living ones are already rotting. Okay, and so she's pointing to the fact that it's it's a very dramatic scene, and there's this the, the the language of it is 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 heavy, right? But she's pointing to the fact that she's like, man, the problems with the world are not out there. Okay, if you go looking for the problems with the world, you're not going to find them with somebody to blame on the outside. The problems with the world are in our own hearts. The Apostle John tells us exactly what's going on in John chapter three, and this is the judgment: the light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Okay? That's the situation that we find ourselves in at the beginning of Advent. Gloom, anguish, walking in darkness. Darkness that we have chosen. Darkness that we have been judged with. Darkness that is just part of the warp and woof of the way life is now. And you know what we do? Is we try to hold that off by stretching Christmas out instead of living in Advent for a minute. Instead of, we, we, we like to jump to the ending because, man, that's the nice part. That's the part where the light comes. And the light is coming. We'll get to that in a second. But it's not here yet. We live in deep darkness in the meantime. And we need to wrestle with that a little bit and, and recognize it. So you might say, 
Cool, Ash. Super encouraging. Uh, thanks. I'm glad I came tonight. This really put me in the Christmas spirit. That's what I was looking for uh, at the beginning of Advent, right? We have to come to the realization that Advent begins in darkness. We want to live out the joy of Christmas, but if we miss the necessity of the joy of Christmas, we miss why we need it, then something is going to be missing there. And I think it's already missing in our culture. It's the reason why it's so easy for our culture to downgrade from celebrating Christ to celebrating something like giving or the Christmas spirit, and then really past that to downgrade into family and friendship, and then to downgrade past that to look at this commercial where a guy gets a BMW with a big bow on it. That's what your life should be like, right? And we keep on taking it back. When you go to the jeweler and they show you a diamond, what do they do? They show it to you on what? Oftentimes they have a piece of black felt or something like that, right? And the reason is because with the background of that blackness, you can see the beauty of the diamond and its, and its luster and, and aspects and everything like that. That's the point of the beginning of Advent. The point of Advent is to set the scene with the darkness that we live in so that we recognize the need for the light to come in. Again, it's, it's, it's my opinion that part of the reason why we have a decline in the Christian faith in general, in some aspects of society, certainly with our influence in, in, in society, is that we don't believe in sin anymore. And if we don't believe in sin, we don't trace any of our misery or brokenness or darkness to that sin. So we live in a world where, at worst, what we would call sin is a dysfunction, you know, something that kind of messes up the way you live your life a little bit. Perversion is our identity. Addiction is a disease. Pride is posh. Greed is the American dream. We have eliminated just about every concept of sin and therefore eliminated any guilt that we might have to any of that sin. And here's the deal. In a world where I'm good and all the problems are with those people out there, then we're going to have a hard time Seeing the light. Shiny, happy people aren't looking for a savior. And they're very unimpressed when one arrives because they don't feel like there's any need for one. But for those living in darkness, the savior can't come soon enough. Right, The light in the dawn is something that we are desperately waiting on. And so in the midst of that brokenness, in the gloom, in the anguish, in the darkness, there's a prophecy. And that's what we get to at the end of that passage. On this place, this land where darkness reigns, a light is going to shine into that darkness. And that light is the promise of this Savior, this Messiah, this chosen one who is to come. And there is a promise that that light will break into the darkness and that it will shine into the gloom and that those things, in a very real sense, certainly in an ultimate sense, will be cast away at that point because of the brilliance of the light that will be coming into the world. And so for us reading Isaiah's prophecy in hindsight, 
um, we recognize some what you might call prophetic symmetry in these places that he has referenced. Because if you know your your Bible geography pretty well, you might immediately notice that Zebulun and Naphtali, where do they sit? They sit about Galilee, see Galilee's right here, Zebulun and Naphtali about right here. You know what sits roughly on the border between Zebulun and Naphtali? The city of Nazareth. All right. Moreover, we know from reading the scriptures that Jesus' headquarters, um, his, his primary base of ministry, his hub for ministry, was the region of the Galilee. Okay? And so this interesting thing happens in sort of this, this, this biblical symmetry. We read about this place being called Galilee of the Nations. It's called Galilee of the Nations because it is the point at which every Gentile nation that has ever conquered Israel has entered into the nation. But now we see this picture where now when the light invades, right? When Jesus, when God invades his land, where does he come? He comes through the same point. He comes through the same point of entry in Galilee of the Nations. It's interesting, too, that it's called Galilee of the Nations, and this is just another little thing, because here's something interesting if you look at your Bible. That name is not used anywhere else in all of Scripture. It's called Galilee in lots of places, but nowhere else in all of Scripture is it called Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, in, in the book of Matthew, it is repeated. This prophecy is repeated, so it's there, too, but it's just referencing this. Why does he bring the Gentiles into this at this point? Well, I think we know why he brings them in. is because the light that is coming into the world is not just for the nation of Israel and, and the heartache that they have been through. It is for the nations that live there now, too, who are represented by the Gentiles who, have, who are invaded. The light that is coming into the world is going to bring light to all darkness, not just to the, to the Jews who have been waiting for it and who have prophesied about it, who are, who are looking for it, but to the Gentiles too, and let's let's point out that when we get to the birth of Christ, what happens? The Gentiles show up there too, because we find out that while most Gentiles may not know that the Messiah is going to be born, there are some who knew. The prophets, the, the wise men in the East had been reading the prophecies probably of Daniel for centuries, waiting for this coming king, this coming Messiah. And so what we find out is that the Gentiles are looking for the Messiah too, at least representatively. We come to this point and we say, all right, Advent, it begins in darkness. There's something to be learned there, something that we should hold on to. Don't just jump straight into Christmas so easily. Again, I'm not telling you not to go home and decorate and, and, and watch It's a Wonderful Life. You can do that too, okay? But there needs to be another place in your heart where you are juggling different feelings. Because the reality is, is we do live past the light coming into the world, right? The light is in the world now, so we, we are living in light of that truth. And so it would sort of be silly to pretend like it was still out there in the future somewhere, okay? But again, it is out there in the future in a sense, because we not only wait and celebrate the coming of Christ in the Advent, but we celebrate the second coming and look with anticipation to do that. And so as we begin with the first Advent candle, the candle of hope, the candle of living in a situation we don't want to be in and looking forward to um, the dawning of, of this new light, let's focus on that in our prayer, in our devotional life. Over the next few weeks, as we consider um, the great need 
that we have, the, the darkness and the gloom that pervades many aspects of our life, and the fact that Jesus has come to put an end to that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we, we thank you for, God, your word. We thank you particularly for um, your prophetic word that we see in the Old Testament. God, what an encouragement it is for us to be able to look to the scriptures that were written um, hundreds, even thousands of years um, before the coming of your son and see um, his, uh, the importance of, of his coming and the means of his coming. Um, God, the theology that is tied to his coming. Um, the necessity of his coming for, for our reconciliation to you. Um, God, that you have preserved your word through the centuries so that we can have it as a point of reference to look back and know these things. Um, God, see the beauty of these things being fulfilled uh, in history. Father, we ask that you would um, work in our own hearts as we enter into this, to this uh, Advent uh, and eventually into this Christmas season. God, that, that your call on our life is to always be people of repentance. Um, God, that you are continually calling on us to examine our own hearts, to turn from sin and self-righteousness and self-centeredness, God, and to turn to uh, you in repentance and faith. Father, we ask that you would give us a double portion of that spirit in this season, um, that you would train our hearts in on that idea uh, and that we would um, think and live and read and reflect uh, and engage with each other in light of those things. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. Thank you. 
So here's the deal with our songs tonight. Um, so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Like, those are great Advent songs, okay? But the deal is, is they they, they cross the line into Christmas songs, right? Um, they're good Advent songs because they're talking about the future coming of Jesus, but then they cross into basically being also Christmas songs. That's how a lot of Christmas songs are and, and Advent songs are. They, they kind of do that. But let me tell you something. Abide with me, the song, the second song that we sang earlier, that's an Advent song. Okay. Um, the sentiment of that song is the sentiment, I think, of Advent. Certainly the, the beginning of Advent. Go back and take your bulletin home with you. Um, uh, read the lyrics of that song back over. Um, the expressions of recognizing our weakness and our brokenness, but also trusting in God, um, even in the midst of suffering. In, in death, um, I need thy presence every passing hour. Hold thy cross before my eyes. I mean, he's talking about being on his deathbed at that point. Um, that's an Advent song, okay? Uh, there's not a lot of Christmas in that song, um, but it's a great Advent song, okay? So uh, go home and look at that one again, if you will. Glad you're here. Good to see you. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.
to be fun, yeah. Um, she'll be up here in the next three or four weeks with us, leading up. So. I will, I will pick, I'll pick the songs and I'll send it to Tim's phone like I did last time. I'll just have to see what songs are doing. She did great, yeah.
I hate to use some of the language or like oppressive or whatnot, but it's just it is weird. It's I don't know, soul crushing. Are you gonna be able to take off? No, I don't get any. 
I can't, I, I could technically take time off. The problem is, is that I've got three software releases for products coming out before, after, before and after Christmas and then right after New Year's. So we have, we're in testing cycles all through that time. So it's like if I take off, I'm not a team player. I've got a team of six now underneath me. So I'm not setting a good example. So it's like I have the burden of leadership on me now where it's like I don't, as much as I want to, I need to try and set a good example in both ways. Setting a good example for, you know, sticking to the job and getting the work done and stuff. But also I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I set a good example for taking time off from the corporate. And I haven't figured it out yet. It's, Yeah. <laughs> 
Still got to set things, get things cleaned up. So y'all gonna have to wait a few minutes. It's good. It's good. Kind of weird, you know, with first one without my mom. You know, so it's it's weird. And, uh, but, but it's good. Had, uh, my dad and my brother couldn't come out here. Yeah, Tim signed up for Frosty. Yeah, we're ready for that. So, right. that. so that we 
Because he had started it before, like that, you were not playing with him. I was again. not right. at the beginning, but they had me. They got an expansion and they were able to have me as a character. Right. So now we're we're party of fives. We do chapters every mm-hmm. once in a while. Mm-hmm. Now I've played like four times now. <laughs> 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 I think it looks really cool. I've never I've never played it either, but no. and then they play, they're the ones who are trying to, you know, whatever. But anyway, this last week, as one of their Christmas presents, one of James's Christmas presents, because he'd never done it, we got on Hero uh, Forge. Oh, I love that. I've and, so many characters yeah, and never bought them. And never bought them. I did the same thing. Like, I made, whole, I made a whole family of, like, Scottish warrior people and then just, like, saved their pictures and nice. whatever. But anyway, he made his own dwarf character because he's the dwarf in the game. And so he'll get it here in a couple of weeks for Christmas.